Uh, I said a couple of weeks ago, for those of you who were not here, that the impending death of Jesus was going to come to us in the gospel in kind of a slow-mo fashion, in contrast to the preceding chapters following the ministry of Jesus. In the first part of John's gospel, it's kind of quick glimpses. You might have months, sometimes even years between the events of Jesus, but here's where it really slows down. This is especially so uh, in the beginning chapter because now all that Jesus has mentioned so far in in chapter 18 uh, regarding his death, it's about to be played out. We're about to see the things that Jesus has been talking about, not just hear that it's going to happen. And because we are now coming to the death of Jesus, I want to pay special attention to what his death actually means from many different angles, not just today. But as we get closer and closer to the actual event in the text, we're going to really look closely at what the death of Jesus means. You know, it's easy for us to say as Christians, well, Jesus died for me. Right? It's sometimes more difficult, though, to explain how he died for you and how that death practically relates to your life now, not just when you die. Right? Yeah, when we believe in Jesus, we go to heaven. That seems to be the simplistic understanding. But what does it mean for you today? What is the gospel of Jesus that he died for you? What does it mean now? These are the start of uh, the start of the kind of questions that we're going to start to look at as we come closer and closer to the crucifixion. So this morning, what I would like to show you from this final encounter, it's kind of the beginning of the end that Jesus has with the Jewish and Roman authorities is how God sovereignly intertwines salvation into our lives, even though we can't always make sense of it in the moment. He's going to show us how he's at work even when we can't see it right in the moment. So our text again is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where the garden or where where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was spoken to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it should be expedient that one man should die for the people. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we come again to your your holy word. This is a word that is given to us to guide us and to lead us into all truth. 
We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that didn't just inspire these words so that we might look at them on a page, but that you've given us your Holy Spirit so that we might be connected to these words by faith and understand truly the meaning of these words. Let us not miss your son Jesus and what he's done for us in these words this morning. I pray that we would catch a glimpse of the heart of Jesus, the the Jesus who says, I am gentle and lowly, the one that calls and welcomes him to us, to himself. Lord, help us. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So here is the moment where things began to get real for his disciples. It's all coming together and it's all coming to a head now. And Jesus is warned then about these many things regarding his death. He's told them throughout his ministry. But until this point, they've had Jesus with them kind of to look over their shoulder to reassure themselves. Okay, Jesus, is this what you're talking about? Yes. So, But now it starts to change. Now, for instance, when Jesus tells them Judas will betray him, the disciples see him leave, but they still don't really catch the full weight of what has just happened when Judas leaves the upper room. They don't realize that Judas is going to come to this passage where we see him today, where he goes behind their backs and sells Jesus' location to the Jewish authorities. They didn't realize that when Jesus said that one of you is going to betray me. Now, consider how painful this would have been for them in this moment, where they start to realize, it starts to click with them what Judas has done. This is painful for them. It says in verse 2 that Judas knew they would be in this special place, this garden of prayer. If you read the other gospel accounts, you know that this is the garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus often went with his t- disciples to pray. And we can take from this that at one point, Jesus was there with Judas and his disciples praying. Think about that kind of betrayal, having your brother or sister sitting next to you praying with you and then betraying you later on in the ministry. So Judas, what he did was he took the most vulnerable knowledge about Jesus and his disciples, and he used it against them. He betrayed them. Now, this isn't a great parallel, but it'd be something uh, attuned to like a family, maybe back in Nazi Germany, a family hiding Jews in their basement, right? trying to keep them away from the authorities. The authorities know that they're there. And one of the family members who's been with them all along says, I'm going to go out and get groceries. I'm going to leave. And we think that everyone in the basement thinks, oh, he's just going out to get stuff for us. Maybe he's going to bring back a meal for us so that we can eat, only to bring back a band of Nazi soldiers to lead them off to the death camps, to lead them to Auschwitz. Now, this isn't exactly what's happening, but there's something of that kind of betrayal happening here. It hurt. It was painful. It's 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 baffling. It kind of leaves you with your jaw dropped saying, how could you do this? That's the kind of heartbreaking betrayal that are that's going through the minds of the disciples. And they're still, as they've been in the last couple chapters, they're confused. What is going on? How does this make sense? I thought that, what happened to this plan of salvation, Jesus? What is going on? But then verse 4 shakes us into remembrance that Jesus knew this was coming. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing that all this would happen to him, came forward. You know, he's kind of presenting himself. He came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? You can hear the authority that he speaks in his voice. You can see this posture that he's coming with. So, so what does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us a couple things. At first, it shows us that Jesus had foreknowledge. You understand what I mean by foreknowledge? He knew what was going to happen before it happened. He knew exactly what was happening in this whole situation, how it would play out before it happened. He knew it would happen. And he even told his disciples 
that it would happen, right? He's warned him of this kind of thing, but he was obviously more prepared because he had true foreknowledge. He, he could see it before what was going to happen. He was ready for this. Okay, so he has foreknowledge. Second, it shows us that Jesus was not at all shying away from what was happening to him. Jesus wasn't scared. You don't sense any fear here. He came forward and presented himself unabashedly with authority in his words. He says, what are you doing here, guys? What's going on? What's the matter here? Okay, so he has authority. And third, we can see that while his arrest did happen to him, we speak of this, this happening to him, it was still his choice that he laid down his life for the sheep. In other words, he was in control of the situation. Jesus didn't just have this happening to him. He was in control. He allowed it to happen. He had the power to shut it down, but he didn't. Earlier, we were reminded that no one takes Jesus' life. He lays it down of his own accord. That's what it says in John 10, 17 and 18. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Right? I lay it down of my own Accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So verse 4 shows us a good picture of the sovereignty of Jesus. We often talk about the sovereignty of God. We less often talk about the sovereignty of Jesus. He had foreknowledge of what would happen. He faced it head on with boldness, with courage, full of the Spirit. And he was in control of the outcome, even though it meant allowing his arrest. Jesus knew all that was happening. And all these attributes that we've just talked about, foreknowledge, authority, and sovereignty, these are attributes of God, of divinity. And with this in view, verse 6 makes a lot more sense. It might seem overly dramatic that this band of soldiers and the Jews fall back at the pronouncement of Jesus. Right? It seems dramatic, doesn't it? But if you look at the Greek, which most of you aren't looking at the Greek, but I have looked at the Greek, and I can tell you, and some of your Bibles will point to this fact. If you would look to the Greek, you would see that he's saying in response to their question, he's not just saying, I am he. He's actually saying, I am. He says, I am. He isn't in the Greek in verse 6, interestingly enough. It's not in the Greek. He's just saying, I am. It, uh, the he is supplied in English to help us see that Jesus is uh, affirming that it is he that they are looking for. Now, when you leave out that, he, or when you leave the he out, you can start to see things that actually change a lot. What is easily missed in our English translations is that the band came out looking for a riotous figure with torches and weapons, you know, items to illuminate darkness. I want to see in the dark. Uh, and, and weapons to assault the supposed criminal. They came out with those kind of things, and what they found is God himself. They came out and they found the great and powerful I Am, the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. They found Yahweh when they were looking for a criminal. They found the one who says, I am the light of the world. Right? Those torches? Really? This is who they found when they came out. So it's a wonder that they didn't drop their lanterns and weapons and run away at the sound of I am. Not just fall back. I can't believe that they got up again. I can't believe that they didn't stay on the ground. Now, it, it was probably in this moment that if there was any question about who was wrong in this arrest... It was right here that they knew that they were in the wrong. Jesus is the one that is righteous here. Jesus is the one that should be coming after them. They went looking to eradicate evil in the name of God. Think about this. This is the Jews saying, we're going to follow our God. We're going to get rid of this, this riotous figure who's making a stink in Judaism. 
We're going to take him out. And they went out in the name of God. And surprisingly, they found God himself. Wow. They were knocking on the wrong side of the doors. What was happening there? They were knocking on the wrong side. So to answer our prior question more pointedly about what this tells us about Jesus of Nazareth is that he's God. He's someone to take seriously. He is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. That is the man they came out to arrest unknowingly. And this is where they're starting to realize, oh no. They're they're starting to feel those gut feelings. Maybe we shouldn't go along with this. That's why you see Pilate down the road. I I find this man not guilty. Crucify him, is what they say. He's conflicted about it. They know who Jesus is. So, and because that's so clear, I couldn't help but hear verse 8. If you look at it, verse 8, through the lens of the Exodus story, you know, where Jesus or God leads his people out of slavery from Pharaoh. And when Jesus says, I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these men go. It reminds me of Moses declaring to Pharaoh, I am demands you to let my people go. Right. This is when God revealed the I am name was given to Moses to tell Moses uh, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go free them. Because of what I am doing, I'm going to let my people go. So like Moses interceding for his people, Jesus steps in as the mediator to protect his people, to protect his disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he has spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. You can't take them. These are my people. And here's where I'd like to to switch gears a bit. As we focus on Jesus... Who he is, his identity as God. Uh, I want to switch and start to dig deeper, more so into not just his identity, but his works. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus accomplishing here? If he is, as I said, in control of this situation, what is it that he is accomplishing by offering himself instead of his disciples, instead of his people? When Jesus says, It is he that the Romans and the temple police have come for. He's beginning to show us a picture of the big word here, the substitutionary role he plays in our salvation. He is our substitute. And this is probably why this section concludes reminding us of the ironic prophecy of Caiaphas in verse 14. Verse 14 says it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. What an ironic prophecy. Right? He's, he's not thinking on the right side of things, but he is thinking the right thing. If you remember that sermon, being right in all the wrong ways. Right? Caiaphas was right. It is expedient that one man die for his people. But his logic was, don't kill the whole group. We don't, we don't want to kill all these Jews that are disillusioned and uh, deceived. We don't, want, we don't want to kill the whole group. Just strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, was his logic. Just get rid of Jesus and that will fix the problem that we have. Spare the sheep. They're dumb. Once they're gone, the, the, or once their leader is gone, they will be gone too. They'll be left guideless and resume their life as usual because there will no longer be a leader. But Jesus sees a different outcome. When you strike the shepherd, yes, the sheep will scatter, but they're going to be brought back together. They don't see the resurrection coming that Caiaphas missed. Caiaphas missed the whole thing. Now, we often speak of Jesus dying for our sins about his plan of salvation, right? We talked about this a minute ago. It's easy to say that that, but much less often do we explain how this actually works. What does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? That is the technical and theological way this works out. We don't speak of salvation as often as we probably should in precise language like substitutionary atonement. 
These words matter because it gives us a clearer picture of what we mean when we're talking about our sins being forgiven. But that's the picture that we're seeing in verse 8, isn't it? When Jesus takes our place to atone for our sins, when he says, let these men go, take me, he's showing that he is our substitute. He's doing something for us as our substitute so that we don't have to. So the Jews, think about this. In this story, the Jews who have conspired with the Roman government are seeking out a revolutionary figure in their eyes, one who uh, might cause a, a riot at the Passover festival. That's what they're scared of. One who's a troublemaker to the religious and civil order. Right? They're looking for a criminal. They're looking for criminals, an offender in the eyes of the Romans and the Jews, both of these Right, the, the church and the state, you might want to think of it like that. Right, The Jews and the Romans are kind of representative of the church and the, uh, the state. And as we will eventually see, Jesus dies the death of such an offender to satisfy both that are looking for something. While the Jewish world, right, you might say the church, while the Jewish world was slaughtering their Passover lambs in pre- preparation for the festival, Jesus joined the festival too. As the sacrificial lamb. He is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That lamb was a substitute for their sins. So Jesus steps in doing that. That's the the church side. But think about this. Something that many people forget is the Roman government, on the other hand, they had a custom around this festival to free any one prisoner whom the people wanted. And that was around the time of this festival. It was a, a part of their government. They would free a prisoner, a criminal, around the time of the fest- festival from anyone they chose. And they had Barabbas at that point. But what happened? Jesus took Barabbas' spot. Barabbas was the criminal. Jesus was the one that they said, no, we want him. Kill him. Let this criminal go. So Jesus stands in for him as well, satisfying both the atonement, if you want to speak of it this way, for the Romans and the Jews. He is the substitute for both of them. You see, behind the scenes, God was weaving in the plan of salvation into the civil and religious order so that they both might have a substitute given. So that both of their their laws might be satisfied, if you will. Jesus sovereignly laying down his life of his own accord while the powers and principalities thought they were taking his life with lanterns and weapons in the garden is amazing. How he's just weaving this in. He knows what he's doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He He was saving his people. He was working out their plan of salvation. And then Peter steps in. Thanks, Peter, for your help. (laughs) Peter steps in, interrupts this plan of salvation, and chops off the ear of Malchus. And you're like, Peter, what are you doing? Jesus, he's clearly got this under control. What what are you doing? right? But here's a bit of practicality for us as we look at this story. What we realize is that we're often like Peter in the moment of trial. God's sovereignly weaving it all together. He's got things in his, his hands. He's controlling. He's got this. And then we step in to help God out a little bit, don't we? Right. Uh, We've been warned of how this will play out in the scriptures. We read our Bibles. We know the truth. We know what Jesus tells us. He warns us. He says it's going to be like this. And yet when the moment comes, we blow it. We blow it pretty bad often, too. We use weapons of this world to combat spiritual problems, don't we? Three easy steps to do this. Five ways to do this. Oh, I have a spiritual problem. Let me Google it. Let me see what the world can tell me, how, to, how we can fix this spiritual problem. But the reality is only God can reconcile sin problems. Only God can make that right. Said another way, we can't save ourselves and no one else can save us. Only God can save us. 
when we start grasping for stuff in the world to try to save us and solve our problems, what we need to do is take that gospel that we said, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. What does that mean in this moment for you? How do we start applying the atonement? How do we start applying the gospel to our present moment, not just at our death, but in our life now? How does the power of the resurrection speak to you today? How does the, the Jesus dying on the cross right now affect you? That's the kind of things that we need to be thinking about. What good would it have done, just to speak hypothetically, what good would it have done if Peter had accomplished what many commentators believe that he was trying to do, and that is chop off the head of Malchus? Suppose Peter had done that. Suppose he lopped his head right off. What would have that? Or what would that have solved? Like, what good would what would have Peter done if he had actually accomplished what Peter was trying to do? Would it help? Would it have helped Jesus accomplish his plan of salvation and establish his kingdom? No. It's actually a really good thing that Peter missed. That his aim is bad, and it's good that Jesus was there to kind of heal the problem, right? His ear gets lopped off. That could have been really bad. Jesus just fixes. Says, Peter, I don't think you know what you're doing. We need to get back on track. We're, we're, we need to be lockstepped into something else. Peter, at this point, was only getting in the way. And he realizes this afterwards, of course. And we realize it afterwards, of course. But we need to be fine-tuned into what Jesus is doing. Paying attention to what Jesus is doing at all times. Now, please hear me as absolutely and clearly as possible. I'm not making a case for pacifism here. This text has been taken out of context many times, and people say, look, Jesus says we need to get rid of our weapons. We need to lay down our swords. We don't need to have any of that. We don't need self-defense. No, I'm not saying that, nor am I saying that there isn't a place for defending the weak, the vulnerable, and those that we love most at the expense of our lives, being able to step in for them as our substitute. But what I am saying is that sometimes our actions are only getting in the way of something bigger that God is doing. That he's trying to work out. And we can try to think that we're helping God when we're not actually helping him. That's the angle that we need to see and, and look at Peter and his actions here. That's what we need to see from this. Jesus, the fact of the matter is, Jesus wasn't weak. Jesus wasn't vulnerable. He didn't need Peter's help. In fact, it says in other, the other gospel accounts that Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels. Uh, that's what Matthew's gospel said. But Jesus, when he says that, or when they say this, he rebukes them. He said, you don't get it, guys. That's not what we're doing here. Right? That's not the time for that. Jesus knew all that would happen to him, as we saw in verse 4. He told his disciples that it would happen to him. And Peter is still here fighting against Jesus' plan of salvation for him unknowingly. And my point is that we can do the same thing if we're not careful. Jesus could be saving us through the things that are coming up in our life, through the circumstances that we want to lop off. And Jesus is like, no, nah, that's actually for your good. This, this is working towards your salvation, not against it. And if you're trying to stop this, you're actually stopping something that I'm working out in your life. That's what I want us to get from this this morning, that if we live by the sword, we'll die by the sword. That's what Jesus says. If you, if you think you can solve your problems with the world, go and do that. But guess what? You're going to die by it too. That will be your deathbed if you try to live your life in that way. Now, here, here's a, an instance that the church, I want to speak generally, the church often falls into this problem. There's all kinds of ways that we can apply it to us personally. But for instance, the church, we know the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the power of God unto salvation, right? That's God's plan to make it happen. That's how God saves sinners, with the gospel. But sometimes we think that we can bait people in by worldly means instead of just faithfully preaching the gospel. We, like Peter, think that the cutting-edge sort of culture 
We'll solve this spiritual problem. If we can just get a man, then we'll take care of him, right? What we're actually saying, though, is that culture can fix this. If we just water down the gospel, then we'll help God. If we just soften it a little bit. But on the other hand, we should caution that we're not overly militant with the gospel by adding things to salvation, right? We don't want to fall into antinomianism or legalism. We don't want either side of these. Any additions that we make to God's ordained plan of salvation is not helping God. Any subtractions that we make, it's not helping God. We need the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ because that's what works. That's where we need to look to when we're looking to God saving us. It's in those moments that we need to heed the words of Jesus in verse 11 to put down our sword, put it into its sheath. In other words, don't drop it. Did you notice that? Put it into its sheath. He didn't say drop it, don't come back to it. He says put it in its sheath. In other words, now is not the time. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? In other words, do you really think there's another way to salvation than the cross? That's what he's telling Peter there. We know the plan. I've told you the plan. Do you really think that that's going to help? No, put it away. Now's not the time for that. And while we're here looking at verse 11, at that phrase about the Father's cup, I, I want to slow down a little bit. Verse 11, look at it with me. Verse 11 says this. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to him? When he refers to this cup that the Father has given him, it serves as a metaphor for the sequence of events that will ultimately uh, culminate in his death. That's what he's talking about. In the other Gospels' accounts, we see that he prays three times for this cup to be removed. And you remember the prayer, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was his prayer to the Father. Remove this cup. I don't want to do it. It's going to be hard. But he knows that that cup is what he has to do. Also, in the Old Testament, this phrase was often used to speak of God's wrath. Think about that. This cup of wrath left people staggering into their deathbeds in God's judgment. It's talked about like a a cup of the wine of wrath is the way that the Old Testament speaks about it. But interestingly enough, here Jesus says that the Father has given this cup to him. Why would it be given to Jesus? It's usually given to the the unjust. It's usually given to the sinners. It's usually given to the, 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 the unrighteous. And God, in his judgment, in his wrath, he says, this is your cup. This is your judgment for your sin. But here Jesus says the Father has given this to me, he will taste of this wrathful cup that was reserved for the unjust. It's a substitute. Instead of us drinking the cup, he drinks the cup. Church, this is the bitter cup that you and I deserve to drink because of our sin. After every confession of sin, every time we do it, but especially on the Lord's Day, the rightful and the just thing for us to do would be confess our sins and then drink that cup and die. But we don't. There's actually this amazing break where we give the assurance of pardon where we're like, whoa, you mean I get to go free? I just confessed to you that I should be drinking the cup, but Jesus says, no, 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 I'll I'll take that. Let these go. That's how the substitutionary work of Jesus happens. It it comes to us in very practical ways. If, If you look at verse 11 closely and hold it up to the other gospels accounts, we see Jesus considers this sequence of events as something given to him by the Father, kind of like a mission to accomplish. Right? He's, he says, i got to do this. This is part of the plan. While it looks like everything is out of control, think about it from the perspective of the disciples. Deep betrayal, surprising arrests, rash, violent acts. This guy just got his ear lopped off. But Jesus, through all of this, 
He's tightly holding it together, isn't he? he? He's resolute. He's authoritative. He knows what's happening. And he's holding it together in obedience to the Father's will because he has a plan, a plan of salvation. And what we take from this is that our salvation is not something that coincidentally happens to us. What, happen, what we realize is that Jesus is actually in control of it all. He's working through this. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been diligently working behind the scenes to work all of this evil out, all of this sin out even that's going on in your lives. All of that is being worked out for your good if you love him, for your salvation. Even the hardships, even the sin, he is somehow twisting it. He's twisting those things where we think that we're on the right side, but we're not. He's working that out for your salvation. And the level of sacrificial self-control that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have as, as they're working on us is insane. It's insane how patient God is with us. Now, think of all the times that Jesus could have blown it like Peter did through his ministry. Jesus had some really, really tough moments of confrontation where he could have just blew it all. I'm sure he was tempted to cut people's heads off just like Peter was. But Jesus, in those moments, he holds it all together, right? Think of this moment here. Realize the level of humility that Jesus had as he rebuked Peter. I'm sure he didn't want to do that. Peter's his friend. He had to rebuke his friend, heal the man's ear who was an enemy, who he knew moments later would bind him up and arrest him, as it says in verse 12, lead him off to an unjust trial that he's not going to get a fair shake at, and then would subject him to flogging, having his body whipped and snagged by a cat of nine tails, and then having his flesh ripped off, put on a cross for crucifixion. Jesus saw all of that, and still he held it together. He did not lose his cool because he knew he had a mission. He was focused on your salvation, not just the disciples. That's something that we really, really, really need to take from this is that Jesus doesn't just save the disciples here and all of this work. He's thinking about you. He's thinking about all the things that you're going through and how you need saved from them, how you can't do it on your own and how he can only do it. And if he doesn't stay resolute and focused, hyper focused on his mission, no one will be able to save you because only he can do that. Now, As we close, there's many lessons that we can learn from this scene in the life of Christ. But most importantly for us today, I would like you to see how God sovereignly, that's a big word, but I want us to hold on to it tight and see it as a good thing. How God in Jesus sovereignly has accomplished your salvation apart from your help. Apart from your help. He doesn't need your help. Jesus doesn't want your chopped off ears. He doesn't want your chopped off heads. He doesn't want your filthy rags. He doesn't want any of that. He desires your faith in him to accomplish your salvation. He's not asking you to save yourself. That is not the gospel. The gospel is God helps those who help uh, help themselves. That's not the gospel. No, Jesus saves us, and we need to fix ourselves on that, that Jesus is the one that saves. And we need to be careful that we're not getting in the way to where we think that we're helping God out when he doesn't need our help. And what I hope you see from this text is how God has things under control as it relates to your salvation. He's got it. So so the takeaway is really I can relax a little bit. I don't have to feel so uptight where I'm hand on the sword all the time where I'm ready to like lop at something because I've got these three easy steps because I read this book once and I helped this person out. No. Jesus is like, chill out. Just, Just take it easy. I've got this under control. I want you to be able to rest. I want you to realize that I'm the one in control here. I'm the one that's going to save you. And you don't need to be so uptight about your salvation because I'm the one that's doing the work. Yes, trust in me, but rest in me, right? Don't be anxious in me is what Jesus is saying. Now think about this. Jesus, he's given us a good picture of how he's just the opposite of Peter here. Peter is kind of us. 
We're, we are Peter in this story, if you haven't caught this so far. We're not Jesus. Peter here, he's a mess. Peter feels out of control. And everything that Jesus is in this passage and the coming passages, Peter's pretty much the opposite of that. Jesus is self-controlled. Peter's erratic. right? Jesus is an authority. He knows what he's doing. Peter's scared to death. right? He's ready to pull out his sword. Jesus is confident in his identity. Peter doesn't really know who he is. He's denying Jesus later on. Okay? So what we see is that Jesus is the one saving us. I say all this not because misery loves its company. No, uh, we just want to get in the same bed uh, that Peter's in and say, yep, uh, we're in the same place. We're all miserable together. That's not why I'm saying this. I want you to see that Jesus isn't just Peter's Savior. He's your Savior. That's why I want this to relate to you, for you to recognize that Jesus is saving you in the same way that he's saving Peter. And that is through your mess. Through, through your sin, God is in control. He, he is yours too if you love him. Peter's the one that's asked, do you love me? And he says, yes, I love you, Lord. Jesus like, do you love me? He asks you those same questions too because we often fail him. When you are a mess and you couldn't draw the line of salvation uh, through your life if you were asked to, God's saying, I've actually got the line and this is where I'm drawn. And we need to just trust the hand of God that he is drawing that line of salvation all the way through our lives so that we can see that it does come to the end. Yes, Jesus died for my sins so that at the end I get to be with him. But even now, we need to trust the Father's hand that he's, that he's kind of sketching out our life because he knows all that's going to happen. It's not our job to save ourselves. That's what we need to take from this. It's his job. We aren't called to drink that cup. Jesus is called to drink that cup. And he does it willingly for us as our substitute. He says, let these men go. That's my cup. That's for me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so, so thankful that you sent your son Jesus to do all that he did for us. But as we start to hyper-focus on the cross and what it means for us today, we want to come to you with gratitude and, first of all, just say thank you. That your son Jesus drinks that cup for us. That it's finished. That we can look to his finished work on the cross. That the wrath of God doesn't come to us. It's been poured out on your son Jesus how he willingly subjected himself. No one took his life. He volunteered it. He loved us so much that he died for our sins. Let us catch a glimpse of the heart of Christ today as we look to this text. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue worshiping this morning. That is what we're doing as we sing songs. We're giving glory to God for the things that we just learned about in our uh, in our sermons, in our confessions. When we sing, we're saying thank you, essentially. This is our way of being expressive of our gratitude towards God. So let's stand together and sing nothing but the blood. There is no other thing that can free us from our sins but the blood of Jesus.